Father, you've given us so much truth to remind ourselves about and to chew on and to, to sing and to hear and to pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that what we find in there are truths that we can sing about, Lord, that we can rejoice over, that we can be humbled by. Uh, Lord, we thank you for these things. And Lord, it's your truth that reaches down into our hearts and changes us. It softens our heart. It makes us know you for who you are and love you for who you are. And it helps us to know ourselves, uh, to know what we need to be saved from within ourselves and uh, what we need to be conformed to, namely the Lord Jesus. And Lord, I pray that this time in Psalm 10 would continue that, that we would allow your word to flood into our hearts and to drive out uh, remaining indwelling sin, that it would change our hearts, that it would make us more like our Savior, that it would fill us with more joy and more faith um, and more zeal to reach out to the lost with the gospel uh, because we know what we've been saved from. We know what they are heading toward and we don't want that for them. We want them to know you. Lord, may your word accomplish these things in my heart and in each heart. Here we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please turn in your Bibles to the 10th Psalm. And once again, this is a, a longer Psalm, so I'm not going to read it for us. We'll just work through it as we go along. In this psalm, we are going to see how faith responds when we look into our world and we see the wickedness of men seeming to prevail without any hindrance at all. When you read the New Testament, there is a repeated exhortation that you find throughout each one of those 27 books, really. And the exhortation that we find there repeated is that we are to persevere in our faith in the Lord Jesus. We are to abide in Christ. We are to continue with him. And by so doing, we demonstrate ourselves to be true disciples of his. For example, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 14 says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. One of the temptations that we all face on a daily basis that works against our perseverance is the apparent prosperity of the wicked. We see the wicked prosper and we can think to ourselves, am I really on the right path? I don't seem to have it so easy as them. I seem to encounter a lot more trouble than them. Am I really following the right person? And we can ask that especially when the prosperity of the wicked comes at our own personal expense. And in fact, many in the nation of Israel did not continue with the Lord due to this very thing. In the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, God takes, Israel, takes issue with Israel and he says this, Your words, speaking of the Israelites' words, 
He says, your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, so he's made this charge against Israel that their words are arrogant against him. And Israel responds by saying, what have we spoken against you? And this is what God tells them. You have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. That's what they say. They see the wicked. They say, why am I following the Lord when they are prospering, when they are the blessed ones? What is the point? Where is the prophet in me following the Lord? And God calls that arrogance. Unbelievers do not persevere with God because the prosperity of the wicked becomes too alluring to them. They have a temporal perspective. On the other hand, believers, true believers, have an eternal perspective. They can see beyond this life. And in Psalm 10, we're going to see this eternal perspective. We're going to see how a true believer deals with the temptation that comes with seeing the wicked prosper. Psalm 10, verse 1, we see the first response of the true believer when he sees the wicked prosper. He presents his questions to God. He presents his questions to God. Verse 1, the psalmist asks, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The psalmist asks why it is that Yahweh, the Lord, seems so distant from him, and why it is that when his people need God the most, God appears to hide himself. It's confusing, it's perplexing to the psalmist. And he's not blaspheming God here, he's not accusing God of wrongdoing, but in the midst of his distress, he doesn't cover up the fact that he doesn't understand what God is doing. And so he asks God, why? Why is it playing out this way? I want you to turn over to Psalm 73, and I'm going to kind of work through this psalm in parallel with Psalm 10, so you could put a little bookmark in Psalm 73. But we see the same confusion in Asaph. He was the man who wrote Psalm 73. And he has the same perplexity. Look at the first three verses of Psalm 73. He says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. So he came close to not believing what he just said in verse 1. My steps had almost slipped. Why? Verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So this, Asaph was experiencing this confusion as well. And this struggle has been the experience of believers down through the ages. When we encounter times of distress, when we see evil men running roughshod over the weak, knowing what we know about God, that he is just and that he cares about the affliction of the needy, we can find ourselves very much confused by what we see. And we say, God, you are just, you are righteous, 
You say you care about the orphan and the widow, then why are you not stopping those who are abusing the orphan and the widow? In our minds and our hearts, we believe the truth that God is not doing evil by allowing this to happen, by even actively ordaining this to happen, because it's impossible for God to do evil, but we don't understand why it takes so long for God to act. So we ask him. Faith runs to God with questions. Then we come to verses 2 through 11, where the psalmist presents the facts to God. He's not informing God of something that God doesn't know about, but he's pouring his heart out to the Lord, saying, Lord, this is what's happening. This is what's confusing to me. This is what is burdensome to me. He goes on to explain his situation and why it's so confusing to him. It shows us, verses 2 through 11, shows us why he's asking these questions. Verse 2, he says, In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. The wicked are proud, and they are hot on the heels of the afflicted. They're running them down. My Bible translation then has the psalmist in verse 2 praying against the wicked, saying, let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. But that phrase, let them be caught, it could also be translated as they are caught in the plots which they have devised. Those being caught being the afflicted. The afflicted are caught in the plots which they have devised. And that's how the NIV translates this verse. The NIV reads, In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. And to me, that translation makes a bit more sense in this context because in verses 2 through 11, he's describing why he's so confused. He's describing what the wicked are doing, that they are hunting down the afflicted and they're overtaking them and killing them. We see that throughout these verses. Let's go to verse 3 and 4. He continues, he says, For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. We continue to see the pride of the wicked here. They boast, verse 3, they boast of their evil desires. They boast about what they want. They boast about how they're going to get it. And then they boast about how they've succeeded in getting it. And not only that, but they spurn the Lord. They revile him. They curse him. In verse 4, they are too proud to seek God. Mine says in verse 4, the wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance. That literally reads the height of his face or the height of his nose. You get the mental picture of the wicked kind of disdainfully sticking his nose high in the air at the thought that he would ever need to seek God. And verse 4 at the end tells us there is no room in his thoughts for God. Verse 5 and 6, his ways, speaking of the wicked, prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. 
As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. In verses 5 and 6, we see the attitude of the wicked. And verse 5 is precisely what is so perplexing to the psalmist. He says, his ways prosper at all times. The plans of the wicked never seem to go wrong. It always seems to go according to plan and they get what they want, even though what they want is wrong. They always seem to get their way. And maybe that's why they never crack a Bible a day in their life. The psalmist says in verse 5, your judgments... God are on high, out of his sight. Your judgments, what God thinks about certain matters. The wicked do so well that they think they don't need God, and they don't bother to consider what his judgments are, what his commands are, what his word says. Doing pest control, I went into a lot of people's homes, and a a large percentage of those houses had Bibles in them. But they were not all believers, as far as I could tell. For the wicked, they are like the person who has a Bible in the home, but the Bible is up on the top shelf, way over in the corner, with three inches of dust piled up on it. God's judgments are on high, out of their sight. They don't take that book down. They don't open it up. They don't want to know what God has to say about what they're doing. And the wicked just goes on merrily, seeing his plans prosper. At the end of verse 5, if he does encounter any opposition to his schemes, he just snorts at them. Like, what are you going to do about it? Adversity might come on others, verse 6, but they won't come on him. They are convinced that nothing will ever move them or shake them. Do you see how confident they are in themselves? For our call to worship, we read from Psalm 16. And David says something very similar to what the wicked says back in Psalm 10, verse 6. I will not be moved, or I will not be shaken. David in Psalm 16, verse 8, he says, I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. You notice that's very similar to what the wicked said. The wicked said, I won't be moved. I won't be shaken. David says, I won't be moved. I won't be shaken. But their reasons for saying that are entirely different. Why does David say, I will not be shaken? Because who's at his right hand? God is at his right hand. But the wicked says, I will not be shaken, because he's confident in who? Himself, not God. Himself. Back in Psalm 10, verses 7 through 11, we see how the wicked's pride spews out of his life in the form of violence against others, either violent words or violent actions. Verse 7, his mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. 
He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones or by his strength. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Verse 7, the mouth of the wicked is nothing but a sewer. Every time he opens his mouth, there pours out cursing and lies and words of oppression to others. And under his tongue, there lay mischief and wickedness just waiting to come out whenever he has the opportunity. In verses 8 through 10, we see that the wicked is always on the prowl. He's seeking how to take advantage of someone like a lion stalking its prey or like a hunter just waiting for an unsuspecting victim to step into his net. Now, in our culture where the rule of law is still very much um, enforced, we don't see this kind of violence running rampant, do we? The violence in our culture often takes on a tamer appearance, but the proud heart behind it is the same. Maybe, for example, your car is complete junk, but you make it look pretty on the outside, and you put it on Craigslist, and you are asking five times the amount of what it's worth, and you know full well it's not going to last three months to whatever poor fool comes and buys it from you. But you put it up there and you wait. You lie in wait for that first-time car buyer to come by and fall into your trap and buy it. And you say, verse 11, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He will never see it. God has forgotten. What does that mean? Well, in Scripture, when it says that God remembers It's usually followed by God's action. Turn with me to Genesis 8. I want you to see this. When God remembers, it's followed by his action. Genesis 8, verse 1. That says, But God remembered Noah, and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. You see, his remembering was followed by his doing something for Noah. Then turn with me to Genesis 19. Genesis 19, verse... 29. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley. He's talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. And remember, God, or Abraham had a conversation with God before the destruction of those cities, asking him, Lord, if, even if there's ten men, you won't destroy the city, right? And he's asking on behalf of his nephew Lot and his family who are living in those cities. When God destroyed the cities of the valley, it came about that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. God remembered. God did something about it. And then lastly, Exodus chapter 2. And there's a whole slew of other examples. 
I'm just giving you a sampling. Exodus 2, verses 23 to 25. Talking about Israel enslaved in the land of Egypt. Now it came about, verse 23, in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. So again, God remembered. Did God do something about it? Yes, he sends ten plagues against Egypt to deliver his people. So we see that God's remembering is his doing. Now back in Psalm 10, verse 11, the wicked says God has forgotten. If God's remembering is his doing, then his forgetting is what? His not doing, right? So the wicked is saying God's not going to do anything about what I've just done to the afflicted. Back to our lemon salesman example, he says to himself, God's not going to do anything about this to me. If God wanted to show favor to that person who bought my car, he would have given him enough sense to figure out this is not a good buy. It's not my fault. God doesn't care. He's not going to hold me to account for this. I'm okay. Back in Psalm 73, We see that Asaph observes this same attitude in the heart of the wicked that he was being perplexed by. Psalm 73, verses 5 through 14. He says, They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. In other words, they're well-fed. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place. Speaking of the wicked's people. And waters of abundance are drunk by them. Now listen, they say, how does God know? And is their knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Both of these men are confused by what they're seeing from the wicked and, why God, and how God is not doing anything about it, apparently. So the psalmist, he presents his questions to God. He presents the facts to God. And in verses 12 to 15, we're going to see the psalmist present his requests to God. He's rehearsed the behavior of the wicked leading up to this section. And it's the behavior of the wicked that has the psalmist perplexed, that has him asking in verse 1, why do you stand afar off? Now, before we get into verses 12 to 15, I want you to notice how similar the words of the psalmist are in verse 1 to the words of the wicked in verse 11. In verse 1, the psalmist says, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide your face? And the wicked in verse 11 says, 
God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. But the rest of this psalm in verses 12 to the end show us that the hearts behind those similar words could not be more different. The psalmist is asking why God is not acting and he waits for God's answer. But the wicked assumes that God will never act and he does not bother to check with God about that. You see the difference there between the psalmist and the wicked. One is running to God with his questions, while the other is running from God with his presumptions. That is the difference between the heart of faith and the heart of pride. So after rehearsing what the wicked have been doing and the distress that they have been causing to the afflicted and the unfortunate, he prays verse 12. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, do not forget the afflicted. You see, the psalmist's questioning in verse 1 was not a hopeless questioning. Otherwise, he would never pray what he prays in verse 12. If he thought that God didn't hear him, that God would never do anything about it, he would not bother to pray to the Lord about it. But he does pray. God has not acted yet, so the psalmist calls on God to act. He says, arise, lift up your hand, do not forget. These are three different ways of saying the same thing. He's calling God to act on behalf of the afflicted and to stop the violence of the wicked. Verse 13, why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, you will not require it. Now that question, why has the wicked spurned God? The psalmist may be asking this question in one of two senses. First, either he's asking, what reason do the wicked have for spurning God? Or second, he's asking, why does God allow the wicked to spurn him? Kind of a provocative question. Like he's saying, don't you see what the wicked are doing? Why, are, why, are the, why is this happening? If you're God, why are you allowing this to happen? And either sense that you take that question fits the context. If it's the first reason, if the psalmist is asking the reason why the wicked spurns God, he's acknowledging that there is a kind of insanity to wickedness. If, if you and I went camping together and a grizzly bear walked into our campsite and you looked over at me and you saw me walk up to the grizzly bear and spit in his face, what would you conclude about me? That I'd lost my mind. Josh is not thinking very clearly right now. Well, so it is when the wicked revile God. The reality that they are antagonizing the infinitely holy, just, and almighty God doesn't cause a shadow of concern to cross their brains. They have lost all ability to reason in that area of their lives. And that darkness, that inability to reason, is something that is true of all unbelievers. No matter how much or how little their wickedness is outwardly expressing itself. Paul wrote about this. Turn with me to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 
Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17, Paul's writing to believers and he's imploring them to not live like they lived before. Before, they used to not even think about things. And he says, as believers, you are now to think about things. Verse 17, he says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sexuality, or sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. That's what we're seeing here in Psalm 10. The wicked's mind is darkened. He doesn't even... He's gotten to the point he doesn't even recognize the danger he has placed himself in. So that's the first, if, if the psalmist is asking that question in the first sense. If the psalmist is asking that question, verse 13 of Psalm 10, in the second sense, you know, in that provocative way of questioning, why has the wicked spurned God? Or in other words, God, why are you letting them go on like this? Look at what he's saying and doing against your name. It's another way of him trying to motivate God to act. To act for the sake of his own name. In verse 13, the second half of that verse, he gives us another insight into the inner thinking of the wicked. He says to himself, you, God, will not require it. He doesn't believe that God is ever going to call him to account for his actions. That's his false assumption. But contrary to that false assumption, the psalmist says, verse 14, you have seen it. The wicked has, says God, has said God does not see. The psalmist says you have seen it. For you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. God has not forgotten the affliction of the afflicted. He will not hide his face forever. He has seen it, and he has taken the wickedness of the wicked into his hand in order to visit it back upon their own heads. The second part of verse 14 says, the unfortunate commits himself to you. That word for commit, it more literally means leaves. The unfortunate leaves it to you. So God has taken the vexation and the mischief of the wicked into his own hand, and the unfortunate sees that and he leaves it with God. He leaves it in the hands of God. The unfortunate will trust that God has taken it into his hand and he will take care of it. Now why is the unfortunate one who trusts in God content to leave the wickedness of the wicked in God's hands. It's because he knows that God is, the end of verse 14, the helper of the orphan. Because the unfortunate knows that God is the helper of the orphan, he does not need to despair that he will never receive justice from God because God will take care of it. And the other side of the coin is also true. The unfortunate does not need to pursue his own personal vendetta against his persecutors because he knows God will take care of it. 
Is that not what Jesus did on the cross in purchasing our salvation? 1 Peter 2, verses 21 to 23. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And what's that example? He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept what? Kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He trusted God to take care of it. And if that is how our master handled his own suffering at the hands of the wicked, then how can you and I do anything different? In verse 15, we see that the psalmist does just that. He leaves it in God's hands. Verse 15, he leaves it in his hands by asking God to do it rather than doing it himself. He says, break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. To break the arm of the wicked is to break his power, to break his ability to continue committing his violence upon the afflicted. And he asks God to go on a search and destroy mission, to seek out the, the wicked man's wickedness until he can't find any trace of it. When I was in pest control, the jobs I hated most were bed bug jobs. Because bed bugs were the hardest to treat and the hardest to get rid of. And we would come to a house and we would roll in big industrial heaters and big powerful fans and we would heat the house up to 135 degrees and we would let it bake at that temperature for six hours and we would go in every 40 minutes to flip over furniture and to rip apart beds and to move the fans around and if it was a big house you were in there for 15 minutes um, and you're just sweating it was a sauna for free you got paid to do that I should have been thankful for that. But after the treatment, sometimes the customer would ask us to come back. And so I'd come back a day or two later to inspect the house to make sure we got them all, to make sure all the bed bugs were dead. And so I would painstakingly look through every crack and crevice of all the furniture. And every so often, I would find a live one. And my heart would sink because it meant I would have to treat it again. And I would treat it again, and they would have me come back again and inspect again. And my heart really sank if I found another live one, because I would have to do it all over again. I was seeking bed bugs until I didn't find them anymore. And the psalmist is asking God to seek out evil until you cannot find it anymore. And now seeing as how God is omniscient, how much wickedness do we think is going to be left once God is done searching it out and destroying it? There's not going to be any of it left. This is the psalmist's prayer to God to deal with the wicked who are not repenting. So we've seen him present his questions to God. We've seen him present the facts to God. We've seen him present the requests to God. But in verses 16 to 18, we see the psalmist present the truth to his own heart, to himself. 
as he's wrestling with this confusion that he's facing. And we see in these last three verses that the psalmist is certain about how God is going to answer his prayer. Remember what the wicked said back in verse 6. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. He thinks his wickedness is going to go on unchecked as he lives happily ever after for generation after generation. But for the wicked, there is no happily ever after. Why not? Because, verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished or nations will perish from his land. Yahweh is king forever and ever. And King Yahweh is diametrically opposed to the wicked. So one or the other is going to have to fall before the other, and it's not going to be the king of all kings who lives forever. Nations have perished from his land in the past by his hand, and nations will perish from his land in the future. And because he's eternal, this king is not disturbed when the wicked prospers for the brief span of their lives, which to him is just like the blink of an eye. God is not wringing his hands over their success like you and I often do. God is playing the long game, and he will win. He will visit his justice upon them. And like Asaph saw, the wicked may die fat and happy in their beds, surrounded by their loved ones, but when they cross the threshold of death, they will instantly lose their temporal peace and they will exchange it for eternal terror. Go back to Psalm 73. This is the realization that Asaph comes to. Psalm 73, verse 15. In verses 13 to 14, he's just said, Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. He's seeing the prosperity of the wickedness and asking, Why am I, why am I putting myself through this? Verse 15, If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So wisely he closed his mouth. He didn't utter what he was thinking to everybody to lead them astray. He waited and prayed about it, thought about it, sought the Lord about it. Verse 16, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction how they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. The life of the wicked is a dream, while their death will be a waking horror. They will have no part in God's eternal kingdom because his kingdom is a place where only righteousness dwells, and there won't be any room for them there. Revelation chapter 21 repeatedly makes this point, chapters 21 and 22. Revelation 21 verse 8, speaking of the new heavens and the new earth, 
John writes, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then down in verse 22, speaking of the new Jerusalem, he says, I, not, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then chapter 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Back in Psalm 10, verse 17, the psalmist says, O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. God has heard the humble cries of his people. God wants what the humble want. What do the humble want? Those who are truly humble before God, what do they want? Well, we've seen throughout this psalm, what they want is wickedness banished from the universe. They want justice. They want righteousness. They want goodness. They want faithfulness to sweep over this world until there's no room for evil. In short, they want holiness to be all that's left and unholiness to no longer stain God's good creation or terrorize his people. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, then you desire that as well. You desire holiness because there's no such thing as a born-again heart that does not desire these things. Now, because we're still fallen, we will have competing desires that kind of cloud it a little bit, but those desires for holiness will be in us and growing. The redeemed heart longs for what God longs for. And because the holy God is king forever and ever, we know for certain that he will get what he wants. And that truth should encourage us as it encouraged Asaph when we are in distress, when we see the wicked prevailing and running roughshod even over ourselves. Go back to Psalm 73 for a final time. We see that this is where Asaph lands as well. Seventy-three, verse twenty-one. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you guide. You will guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. 
My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Back in Psalm 10, at the end of verse 17, it says there that God will incline his ear to us. As a father bends down and puts his ear close to his child's mouth when they're in a noisy room so that he can hear him, so our Heavenly Father has bent low and inclined his ear to hear our cries in the midst of this chaotic world. And will not a Heavenly Father so loving as ours act? Yes, he will, in his perfect timing. Verse 18, why, will, why does he incline his ear to us? To vindicate the orphan and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. He inclines his ear to us to give justice to the orphan and the oppressed. And what does that result in? It results in man who is of the earth no longer being a cause for fear in God's good creation. The wicked need to be reminded that they are but men, mortal men. They are not God. And the humble already realize that. We have already realized, I'm just a man. I'm not God. Only God can run my life, not me. We saw that in Psalm 8, verse 4. The psalmist said, what is man that you think of him and the son of man that you care for him? But the wicked refuse to believe that. And they need to be reminded of it. Psalm 9, verse 20, he said, Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know they are but men. And then here in verse 18 of Psalm 10. In closing, where are you today in relation to this psalm? Are you in the category of the wicked? Or are you in the category of the humble? Do you walk in pride? Is there no room in your plans for God? Do you find it to be an intolerable inconvenience to go to him and to seek his will in his word or in prayer? Do you feel quite comfortable and secure in this wicked world? And do you delight in its wickedness? Do you tell yourself that God doesn't really mind that you're doing what you're doing and he's not really going to do anything about it? What comes out of your mouth on a regular basis? Is it curses and lies and oppressive speech and trouble and evil? If so, then you need to come to the realization right now that God does see and he hears everything you do, everything you say, everything you think, and there will be a day of reckoning and if not in this life, for certain in the life to come. And you need to turn to this everlasting king before it's too late. And this king, this Lord that you have to answer to, is Jesus Christ. God, the Son, became a man, and he lived the perfectly holy life that you have spurned. And he died the death on the cross that you deserve to die and that you will die if you do not come to him in faith. He died in the place of sinners, 
like you and like me so that we could be forgiven of our wickedness. And he rose from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. John 5 verses 22 to 23 says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. If you would be saved from your wickedness and from the wrath of God, you must deal with Jesus Christ. You cannot run an end run around him and get into the kingdom through any other means than through Jesus Christ. He alone can save you from his own wrath. Psalm 2 verse 12 says, Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. You do not have much time left. Turn from your wickedness and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Trust him to be your Savior and Lord. Flee to him for refuge from the wrath to come. And if you flee to him, you will be blessed. You will be eternally happy. You can't find everlasting joy in wickedness. The only place you can find it is in Jesus Christ. And if you come to him, he will not turn you away. John 6, verse 37, The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Out of his great love, he's inviting you, even you who've spit in his face, to come and find salvation in him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your kindness toward us, that you warn us. We don't deserve to be warned. We don't, we don't deserve to know that, that there is a reckoning coming for our wickedness. But in grace, you let us know and you point us to the Savior, Jesus Christ, who did everything necessary to save us forever, completely, to the uttermost. Help us to run to him. Help us to delight in him. Help us to see our wickedness for the disgusting thing that it is. And help us to see Jesus for the beautiful, glorious, holy person he is. And give us a desire for him that infinitely surpasses our desire for anything else, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.